Welcome to the Leanne McCoy podcast. On this podcast, we talk about a lot of things, mostly prayer, but also spiritual warfare, parenting adult kids, and what it's like to be a church lady in an increasingly post-Christian world. This is the place where I contemplate things that are far too wonderful for me, where I also share interviews with people whose lives are greatly influenced or have greatly influenced mine, and where I remind you and me that no matter what we're going through, God's got this. I'm Leanne McCoy, and this is my podcast. This is the third and final episode in my short deconstruction-themed podcast. I hope that if you are enjoying this series, you'll share it with people you know who need to hear it. We've discussed why deconstruction is such a thing today and what might be going on inside the minds and the hearts of the people we know who are deconstructing their faith. As we bring this series to a close, I want to talk about how deconstruction affects us and close with what we can do about it. If 40 million people have left the church, they most likely have left behind at least 80 million who love them. And so this has to be a subject that is um, on the hearts of many people who love people who are deconstructing their faith. Those of us who still embrace Christianity have confident expectation that even though it's being spun as the great deception and the great extortion, there will still come a day for every one of us when we stand before Jesus, where he invites us to live forever with him in heaven, or where we will be eternally separated from him and be damned to hell. No matter how the devil, the world, or our flesh spins the gospel, We stake our lives on our faith that God is the creator, the sustainer and redeemer of the world, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Therefore, we experience loss, grief, and even our own spiritual battles that we have to wage in response to the brokenness we're experiencing in our relationships with people we once shared our spiritual lives with. In this episode, I'm going to talk to you about three, I think it's three, different ways that um, we're affected by the deconstruction of the faith of those people that we love. And the first of these three is that we experience a loss of relationship. The people who love the people (laughs) deconstructing their faith are most often cut off from them or many times, maybe I should say, are cut off from them. And they're dealing with both the challenges presented to their sacred beliefs, but also the loss of the camaraderie that they once shared with that person, that very significant person in their life. They wonder how to relate to this person now. And as they deal with the grief of losing what they thought they'd always have, and we'll talk more about grief in a minute. This isn't always parents toward adult children, but sometimes children toward their parents, siblings with siblings, friends toward friends, and even, and I think this would be especially hard, spouses toward each other. The deconstructing person has likely found a community online that's affirming them. There's truly a social contagion aspect to deconstruction, and with their online cheering squad, 
they might have decided that you're a toxic person to them. There's a big trend going on that promotes setting boundaries and dismissing anyone toxic in your life. And while learning how to establish healthy boundaries in relationships is actually a good thing, you might be surprised to discover that your faith and the life you once shared together with this person could perhaps now be classified as toxic in their process of deconstruction. I found a great article explaining how to identify toxic people in your life and then giving you seven ways to dismiss them. Let me share what I learned with you. Here are the warning signs that someone might be toxic and therefore unhealthy for you and a barrier to your growth. They're self-absorbed and self-centered. They manipulate you into being or doing. Let me see. Let me start that again. They manipulate you into doing or being what they want you to do or be. (laughs) And they use other methods to emotionally abuse you. Um, Thirdly, they're honest. They're dishonest and deceitful. And fourth, they have difficulty offering compassion to you or anyone else for that matter. And fifthly, they have a tendency to create drama or conflict. Now, remember that these warning signs are interpreted by the person dealing with you and not by you. Um, and what I'm saying here, I have, I have no problem with the warning signs. I think those truly are signs of warning of a person who is toxic. But what happens in relationships is that people are perceived based on um, obviously observations and interactions, but also just um, thoughts inside of them that they're working through that could take those observations and those interactions and interpret them far differently than the way the other person would interpret them or very differently than how they were intended by the person on the other side of it. Is that making sense? If you're the parent or an, uh, of an adult son or daughter deconstructing their faith, your relationship was already skewed toward what could be considered toxic the minute they departed from the faith that you worked hard to pour into them from the time they were born or even before they were born. You took them to church, you read Bible stories to them, you taught them, um, Jesus loves me, this I know, and you kept certain things away from them. And now that they've determined that all of that is not only not good, but also bad, then you have become bad in relationship to your um, what you did to pour all of that into them. So you're kind of the manipulator. And your own self-absorbed commitment to the church caused you to unknowingly deceive them. And now that they're leaving all of that behind, instead of having compassion for them, you want them to have compassion for you. Is this making sense? I'm trying to explain to you how it seems to them in relationship to you and what you get caught up in. It is actually, if you really kind of try to jump into their way of thinking, it's no wonder they decided to dismiss you or take a break from you or stop communicating with you because from their place where they are now, you fit the bill of all of the warning signs of a toxic person and their relationship with you is very difficult. It's hard. It's, it's seemingly harmful and it hurts them. So here's seven ways that the article said that you could deal with toxic people in your life because of this one, let them know how you feel. 
Now, I know that I'm not talking to the people deconstructing their faith. At least I hope I'm not. And if I am, hey guys, y'all bear with me. I'm honestly trying to talk to the people who love you that you are having a really difficult time with. And hopefully what I'm saying is going to help them, which in turn will help you. But I'm mostly talking to, I feel like in my podcast right now, those that are loving the people who are deconstructing their faith. So I want to ask you this question. This number one says that the way to deal with the person that you feel like is toxic in your life is to let them know how you feel. Has your son or daughter or the person deconstructing their faith, have they tried to let you know how they feel? Think about that and be honest with yourself and think about how you responded to them when they did that. Just something to think about. Number two, the advice is to put some distance between you and them. Has your person that you love that's deconstructing their faith, have they intentionally put some distance between you and them? If so, this is not because they're trying to hurt you. It's because they're trying to survive you. Number three, it says to them to set hard boundaries. Oh my goodness, this is so hard. When your adult children grow up and they start taking personal responsibility for who they let in and who they keep out of their lives, And if in that process of making those adult decisions and figuring themselves out and um, exercising their independence, they decide that you're somebody that has to be kept out or kept at a distance or kept at arm's length, then you may be bumping up against some of their hard boundaries. And that is no fun at all. And I don't know about you, but after you've parented somebody for 20 years or ever how long you did it, um, it, it, it feels quite, um, well, as a parent, it feels disrespectful. You know, you want to just jerk a knot in their tail and say, Hey, whoa, wait, what in the world are you thinking? (laughs) But at the same time, at some point we as parents have to recognize and realize that our kids have grown up and they get to decide who they let in their life, who they let out and how much time they give to even their parents. It, ah, goodness. I'm going to have to do another whole series on some of that because that is some of the hardest stuff as a parent to understand and to, um, and, and to live with. But anyway, the third thing they're told to do with the toxic people in their life is to set hard boundaries. The fourth is don't be pulled into a crisis. The fifth is to spend more time with positive people. Now I would think that if you're deconstructing your faith and you're looking for positive people, you're probably going to look for people who agree with what you're doing or people who are on the path you're on. They're going with the flow you're going with. And those are the people that are easy to be with. Isn't that true of us too though? I mean, like it is so much more fun to be with people that I know that um, we agree. We agree on the things that are most important to us. And when we're with those people, isn't it fun to get together and we can laugh and we can talk and we can share and we can we can discuss big and heavy things. And and we know that we're not going to disagree. But any sometimes, though, I have people in my life that we can disagree with things, but it's in the safety in that environment. And we can even vehemently, I love that word vehemently. We can even vehemently disagree, but we, but we can do it with deep joy and deep love and respect because we still agree on like some main things. And usually with those people, I'm not being, I'm not being given hard boundaries. I'm not being, um, you know, 
placed at a distance from them. Um, they're not pulling me into crises and, and even we spend time together and there are your positive people. But when a person has considered you as the toxic person, then you would be considered because you're the toxicity, you're not a positive person. Therefore they're going to spend time with other people, not you. That's just the, the raw reality of it. And number six, it says to the person who's dealing with a toxic person, to talk to someone, that's a good idea. So you can process your thoughts and your feelings and you need to talk to somebody who's not emotionally connected to it. Thus, mama is why she or he is not choosing to talk to you. <laughs> because you, whether you like it or not, are emotionally connected to the situation. And then number seven, it, it encourages people to forgive, but don't forget. Um, I'm not going to go into that. We could do a whole lesson on what that might mean. But anyway, that's what the article says to do. Um, it says those are the warnings and these are the seven ways to deal with them. And what I've written here is perhaps you're listening to this right now and you realize that you have indeed been deemed a toxic person in your loved one's life. While in your mind and heart, nothing changed when their mind and heart made such a radical shift, the fallout opened their eyes or enlightened them to what they might now consider was toxic all along in your relationship with them. Ugh. That's all I got to say to that. Ugh. That is a terrible thing to have to come face to face with. Um, and I don't know that knowing this really helps, but at least, you know, and you may need to pause right here for a minute and think on these things because the reality is that the person that you love in the process of deconstructing their faith, which really is between them and God, because you as a Christian parent, I'm talking to Christian parents now, mostly or, you know, a, a godly spouse, because you practice that together, because you encourage that in them. And now they've determined that it's not great, not good. In fact, it's not only not great, not good, it's bad. And it contributes to badness in the world. Would you and I both know that that is a great deception? Um, but that's the way they're feeling right now. And therefore, you are lumped together with that, unfortunately. Um, so it's just important for us to understand and to know that. And it also gives us a little bit of, um, I guess, wisdom in not expecting something different from them and maybe even understanding why we're experiencing what we're experiencing in relationship with them. Um, hopefully that will cultivate in you compassion and understanding and also just um, patience with yourself and with them and a willingness to just stand down. It's kind of like, you know what, mama, you got to stand down for a minute. Anyway, we'll move on. Um, the second thing that we deal with uh, when we're in relationship with someone who's deconstructing their faith because of this first thing that we've just talked about is a broken heart. Because you valued the relationship you once shared with this person, you grieve its loss. And what I want to tell you right now, right here, is it's okay to grieve. Just because nothing was buried or cremated doesn't mean that you aren't suffering deeply from what is a very real loss. Not only did you lose what you had, 
but you also lost what you once took for granted and thought that you would always have. Isn't that the case? Some people have said that you need to bury the person you once knew, not literally bury them alive, (laughs) but they're already gone anyway, aren't they? But figuratively go through the mental and emotional process of burying what is no longer living and will never live again. My friends, I tried to do this. I really did, but I, but I couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to that place. And I'm going to blame the little tiny mustard seed of faith that refuses to let go of hope and the biblical challenge that often heckles me that hope does not disappoint. So instead of being able to have some sort of virtual funeral for my person, I'm instead stuck in the first part of Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Nevertheless, we do have this broken heart we have to deal with while we stubbornly continue to cling to our hope that grows increasingly heavy. And here's my advice to us. Treat the loss of your relationship and the absence of the person you and they once were as permanent. It is permanent. You nor they nor your relationship will ever be the same as it was before. Hopefully, I want you to say hopefully, but hope. F-U-L-L dash Y, hopefully, your relationship with that person will eventually be better than ever. But for right now, it's not. And that's simply the way it is. So let's talk about the stages of grief and how we can literally expect to walk through them. The first stage of grief is shock and disbelief. Think for a minute. There has, there have been some shocking and just jaw dropping moments in your encounter with this beautiful soul that you love who has taken this journey. Hasn't there? The next stage is denial. You just, you just can't believe it. So, and think about that. Maybe you've spent hours in conversation with this person trying to understand, trying to get to the root of it, trying to walk all around it. And all of that time, it's because you were in denial and you were trying to find some little chink where it would all just shift and be okay. (laughs) The third is guilt. You go over and over and over again, what you should have, would have, could have done. And, and maybe if just this, or if just that or whatever, the fourth stage and guilt leads you into the fourth is anger and bargaining. Now this, you may be doing more with God than with that person. You may be (laughs) bargaining with God and, and being angry at him about what, you know, he, what he didn't do, uh, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it, but maybe, yeah, I'm not even going to get into the way, different ways people, uh, interpret that verse, but you, you're just frustrated. You're so angry and you just so want things to be different than what they are. And you realize that you can't make it so. And so that leads to depression, loneliness, and reflection. That's where you just, you could sit for hours thinking on what's going on, or you could very quickly with one unanswered text message or, or phone call or, um, holiday where you missed being together. Just one thing could just hurl you in to what we would call a dark place where you just are feeling really sad and really sorry for what you don't have. 
And then the next stage of of grief is reconstruction or working through. And this is where you begin to do the active work of recognizing that what is gone is gone. And in order to live life, the life that you still have, you must begin to do things differently. I hope that many of you are at this stage now. This is, this, uh, to be quite honest, this is kind of the stage I'm at. I, I've realized enough time has been spent on all of these other stages and I'm ready just to um, deal with what it is now. And the, the last stage is acceptance and accept things as they are today And as I trust God for how they'll be tomorrow, just look for the ways to really enjoy the good things that are in this day and to contribute and pour forth what um, I can to exercise the gifts God's given me to do what he's called me to do right now in the right now. So as I reflect on my own experience with um, people I love who've taken the path of deconstruction, I do realize that I've gone through all of these stages and that they don't necessarily roll forward nicely. (laughs) They tend to bang into each other with one shoving me backwards and another one that I thought I'd already come through. I just have to go through it again. It can get messy, but as you allow yourself to grieve, try hard not to get stuck in any stage. To do so will just prolong the process. And because the person you love is still in your life, um, because, you know, and something I want to say to you guys is they may not be in your life, but they are because they're still in your heart and in your mind and in <coughs> um, in in your everyday thoughts. So because they're still in your life, you might frustrate your relationship with them longer than is necessary if you don't move forward in the process. But also don't think that accepting things as they are means that they will always be this way. As people who take God at his word and trust him to fulfill his promises, accept what is while anticipating what God says will be. Now's a good time to share the other half of Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. Praise God for that. All right, my friends, the third way our loved one's deconstruction affects us is this. Their deconstruction could actually hurl us or you into your own faith crisis. Their deconstruction could actually hurl you into your own faith crisis. Be careful here. Arguments against Jesus have been cleverly fine-tuned by the great deceiver for generations. The devil is far less powerful than God, but he's got supernatural power that goes far beyond our own. The only way we'll defeat him is with the word of God that dwells in us, cultivated by a relationship with God that is disciplined, determined, and daily. In other words, don't skip your quiet time. You're going to need to stay tethered to God's word and filled with his spirit. Determine here and now that you will let God use this heartbreaking ordeal to grow your relationship with him and know that you have an adversary who's chomping at the bit to do what he can to demolish your intimacy with God if he can do, if he can get after it. So look for how God's working all things together for good. Even the unexpected, the hard to stomach, the surprising, terrible, no good, very bad things that are happening in this. And when you can't see the good, just look at God because he is good all the time. 
Study deconstruction as you're able, but the minute you start feeling yourself sliding down a rabbit hole, step away. And even though your deconstructing loved one might shine a spotlight on the ugly realities that smear the reputation of your faith, resist the temptation to see only the bad. Because of the challenges my loved ones have presented me, I've studied the reliability of scripture and the history of the church more than I ever would have studied them had they not been challenged, believe you me. Two great books I've read are A Visual Guide to the Bible, Seeing and Knowing God's Word by Tim Challies and Josh Byers. This particular book promotes our understanding that the Bible is divine revelation. It is God's message to the world. It is a super book, especially if you're a visual learner. I'll put these books in the show notes, the link to them. And second book that's really incredibly great is Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at Good and Evil of Christian History by John Dixon. In this book, Dixon provides an honest account of Christian history and seeks to address the people who are asking or declaring that Christianity has poisoned everything and the world would be better off without religion, Christianity in particular. I am telling you, this book rocked my world because this guy who is a Christian and um, a professor has done a deep dive into the history of the church and in this book just exposes all the bullies, but then also the saints. I learned things that I did not know before. One thing that you may already know and that I did not is that hospitals were begun by um, the Christian faith. There's so many things that the Christian faith set into motion that have affected the whole entire world today that have been incredibly good. But there are actually, and there are, and we know it very well, things that the church has um, had its name attached to that have been horrific. Um, and some of those things, you'll be surprised at the way that they've been extorted. But anyway, enough about that. Those are the books. So why was I compelled to read them? Because the people I love were making legitimate claims and they were asking me questions I could not answer, even though I have a master's degree in Christian education. I wanted to know. I needed to know. And boy, have I learned a lot. While their faith has come unraveled, mine has just grown stronger. So besides continuing to take responsibility and initiative and grow in your personal relationship with God, stay connected to your own faith community. Worship regularly in a spirit-led, prayer-powered, Bible-centered congregation. My friends, God heals wounds, breaks chains, releases agony, and strengthens our faith when we worship him in physical presence with other believers. I know that because of the pandemic, we have more opportunities now than we've ever had to worship virtually. And I love that this is the case because I can worship God now when I'm out of town. And when you're in and um, when you're out of town, you can do the same. But when you're in town, get up and go to church. Nothing compares to the experience of gathering together to worship God with other believers. Let me bring this conversation to a close by giving you a few pointers in doing what you can to keep a good relationship with the person you love who is on their journey of deconstruction. Number one, when you have the opportunity to be together and they, not you, bring up their spiritual journey, ask good questions. Here's a few. Which question resonates more with you? Is Christianity true or is Christianity good? Another question, what questions have you had that no one could answer? How did their inability to answer impact you? What are your main issues with Christianity? Are these issues with the teachings of the Bible or the subculture of the church? 
What role have the internet and social media played in your deconstruction? Who are you most often listening to, people online or in person? Where have you found community and how does it compare to what you experience in church? What has surprised you most during this time? And then here is a great question. What would you like from me? And an important thing to realize when, I mean, to remember when you're asking these questions is you're asking them to learn. You're not asking them to set them up. It's not like you're pitching a question so that once they take a swing at it, you can smash them to the ground. (laughs) That's not why you're asking. You're asking these good questions so you can genuinely be curious and learn and have insight and understanding um, from where they're coming from so that they can share with you and tell and tell you. But I love that last question. What would you like from me? I mean, what what else can we do besides just hear what it is that they would like from us as they're taking this journey? Number two, listen, 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 listen with an open heart. Hear the hurt and be compassionate toward it. Don't take what they accuse Christianity of personally. You don't have to defend God. He can take care of himself. In fact, don't argue at all. Hear the newfound hope they found on the other side and be curious about it. You don't have to congratulate them for it, but just be curious. Collect what you hear and ask God to give you insight so that you can know how to pray for them more specifically. But don't tell them you're praying for them. They'll feel like you're trying to manipulate them or change them. And therefore, you're not accepting them as they are. And that's not loving them very well. Number three, don't be afraid. Give your fear to God and trust him. He's been working with deconstructing people for years. This is news to you, but it's the same old, same old to him. Find some promises in the Bible and tether yourself to them in prayer so that when the winds of doubt blow, you don't get blown away. This is for you, not for them. Anchor yourself to those promises so that you don't go drifting away in a sea of doubt and disappointment. And don't forget that your fear will only reinforce their thoughts that Christianity uses fear to wield power. So express your fear to God, not to them, and spend enough time with God so that you experience him transform your fear to faith. Remember, God is bigger and he's got this. Number four, love them well. Look for tangible ways to express your love for them. Ask God to give you ideas for expressing your love with no strings attached. Love them well by letting them go. Find other things to talk about when you're together and don't let them know how much it grieves you when you're apart. And love them well by praying for them more. Oh, my friends, if only I could go back and walk through the early days of my loved one's deconstruction process again, I would respond so differently knowing what I know now. But I refuse to believe that my mistakes will interfere with God's goodness. He took my shortcomings, my failures, my mess ups into account long before we got here and is perfectly capable of working all things together for good (laughs) in spite of me. I acknowledge and celebrate the fact that God will never overstep his self-imposed boundary of free will that separates him from them. He chooses them even now and is making himself known to them because he loves them, but he's not going to coerce them. He's, he's not going to use his power against them or do anything that hinders them from coming to their own conclusions and making their own decisions. They get to choose to accept or reject him. And my angst over his, this will only distort the truth of it. God's got this. 
and he works best when we live like we believe it. And number five, pray for them. Number five, pray for them. Here's a prayer rooted in God's word, God's word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I bring, and you put the name of your person to you now. You've invited me to come boldly into your throne room where I can, where I get to approach your throne with grace and confidence. That's Hebrews 4, 16. Because of what Jesus has done to redeem my life and connect my head, my heart, and my soul to yours. I ask that you give, the name of your person, a renewed mind. With their God-given renewed mind, may he or she no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Then they will be able to test and approve what your will, what, what your will is, what your good, pleasing, and perfect will is. That's Romans 12, 2. Let the name of your person, let their mind be turned from the things of this world to the things above so that one day they will be like the one sheep who strayed away, the one the good shepherd left the 99 others to go and find. And when they are found by you, let them know that they are your chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Remove their old garments of self-preservation, worldliness, and condemnation, and clothe them with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's Colossians 3, 12. Oh God, give, fill in the name of your person, a mind that is no longer hostile toward you. As they turn from the flesh to you and you ignite their spirit, give them humility instead of pride and draw them into submission to your good and perfect law. They can't do this as long as they are blinded by their flesh, this world, and the devil. Check out Romans 8, 7. Lord, ultimately, we long for you to transform their minds to be one with Christ. Let them no longer worship perfect love as some ethereal, mysterious energy force, but reveal yourself to them so that they know you as their Father, their Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. Check out 1 Corinthians 2.16. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer and for answering it. We know that you do so because you've given us your word and you've invited us to stand firmly on it. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. We love you, Lord, and trust you with the one you've trusted us to love well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for hanging out with us throughout this series. I hope that you've been encouraged, that your faith is strengthened, and that you feel like you have a few more tools in your toolbox or weapons on your battlefield. Scripture tells us that perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 8, and that God hears and answers us when we pray, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Don't lose heart, my friends. Don't give up. Don't stop loving the people you love who are deconstructing their faith. Listen to how fervently, faithfully, and persistently George Mueller prayed for five friends and how God responded to those, to those prayers for these five friends that he longed to see saved. Mueller himself interceded for more than half a century for the salvation of a small group of men. He once wrote, in November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. 
I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. The man to whom God in the riches of his grace has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the selfsame hour or day in which they were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals and yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God I pray on and look yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. That's what Mueller said after he'd been praying for 36 years. Those two men, sons of a friend of Mueller's youth, were still unconverted when he died in 1897. After having prayed daily for their salvation for, are you ready for this? 52 years. His prayers were answered. However, when both those men came to faith in Christ a few years after the great intercessor's death, We have but one life to live, my friends, and when we determine to live it to the glory of God, we will not be overwhelmed or crushed by the loss or the complicity of these relationships. Our loved ones have freedom and they are exercising it. You have freedom and you're exercising yours. My prayer is that you will pray as fervently, consistently, and persistently as Mueller did for his five people, and that you will live to see them saved to the glory of God, either from this side of death or the other. Lord, we pray that you be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.